Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the One Stop English podcast. Each month we bring together teachers, editors and experts to discuss what's going on in the world of ELT. I'm your host, Sam Wadsworth, former teacher and current editor here at Macmillan. Joining me this month are Patrick Curry, Delta qualified teacher and editor on One Stop English. Hi Sam. Becca Sanderson, former teacher and editor of numerous general English titles and business titles. Hey Sam. And Niall O'Shiel, teacher at the Avalon School of English London. Hello. This month we'll be discussing language plateaus, office jargon and reflective learning. We also have an interview with David Crystal, world-renowned linguist, academic and author of over 100 books on the English language. Right, so Niall, um, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I'm a teacher in Avalon School of English on Denmark Street in central London, and uh, I've been there for over eight years now. Uh, we focus on speaking English, so it's a kind of a direct method, but I also teach IELTS there. I've been doing that for a long time, too. Great. Okay, Becca, I understand that some of our fears about Brexit are coming true. Well, yes, Sam. Um, one year later, and Ireland, which along with Malta will be the only other English-speaking country left in the EU after the UK leaves, uh, has seen an 11% rise in the number of international English students in 2016. According to the EL Gazette, there was a significant growth in junior students, so under 16s, from the EU, which accounts for roughly 78% of all the enrolments to English language schools in the country. So, uh, yeah, that's Ireland fully embracing the Brexit effect. Good luck to them. Indeed. OK, thanks, Becca. Um, so, Patrick, what are language plateaus and what can we do to help students overcome them? Good question. Excellent question. Well, um, a language plateau is uh, a point that students reach in their learning journey where they feel they are starting to stagnate. So they can get by in the language, but they feel stuck and don't really know how to progress. And I'm sure, as Noel, you'll agree, one of the biggest challenges teachers face is how to help learners keep progressing when they reach this stage. And not knowing how to address it can be a source of real frustration for teachers and students. So what as teachers can we do to help learners? Um, and I had a little route around on the World Wide Web and I came up with a, a list of uh, a top 10 list of things for us to chew over, which might help teachers uh, help their learners. Excellent. So I was just going to give you each of these uh, in order and you can have a little bit of a discussion or we can. Um, so number one, I thought the, at this level, when you reach a plateau, is set some new but achievable goals. OK, can you tell us a bit more about that? What do you mean? Um, so setting things that are challenging them, pushing them above their level? Or? Yeah, so what I mean is when students first start learning a language, everything's very new and they see kind of tangible progress very quickly and very frequently. But that kind of slows as they reach an intermediate level. And so I was thinking you need to kind of recognize that and then mm. reset sort of targets that they set themselves or you set them. So, I mean, how might you change their targets? Well, you usually when they start, you do some kinds of needs analysis. So, yeah, you could revisit that and see which areas they feel, they, which boxes they're ticking, and, and, and that can really help you drill down and find out where they need to progress. Yeah, no, any ideas? Yeah, and in some functional language, we've all done the lesson where you, you teach people how to order a coffee or something like that, and mm -hmm. it's basic at first, but you can uh, always give them language and set goals for uh, more developed, more extended things. So instead of just uh, one coffee, please, it becomes, uh, 
you know, double frappuccino. With, oh, I see. You know, Just building on things yeah. and making it more mm-hmm. natural and, and Yeah, you get used to complex. just saying the same thing the same way, don't you? But yeah, yeah. maybe just someone to say, try something else, and yeah. that's the, yeah. the boost you need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that links into my, my second point, which was providing a greater challenge mm. for students, not just setting new goals, but you give them more, more of a challenge. So, you, yeah, exposure to more difficult language, part of the problem is they become stuck in a comfort zone, and so you need to stretch what they can do with their language. Yeah, perhaps you. I guess it depends where they're studying. If they're studying, say, in this country, you could have them try and engineer English into their lives a bit more, you know, put themselves in situations where they need to use English, whether that's, I don't know, going to the coffee shop or going to the bank, you know, not doing something online, making a phone mm. call instead. It's almost like setting them real life challenges. Yes. Things that they have to do yes. in the real world. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And I always uh, encourage them to to just follow their own interests in English too, so that it, it feels a little bit less like work and study and hard labor. So if they're into uh, music or sport or mm. fashion or whatever it is, just follow that interest and, you know, they might naturally discover things which uh, push them on as well. I mean, part of this, another challenge I thought was they could, you could introduce them to new concepts like uh, linguistic registers is one that I found. So a lot of students, well, a lot of teachers are not really aware of this when they first start teaching. You've got different kind of registers when you speak. So a kind of intimate register is something very informal between friends and family. And you've got kind of casual, which is, um, you know, it's still a well-defined social group, but maybe not as close as friends and family. You move on to kind of consultative, uh, formal, and even frozen register. So frozen is like the really kind of traditional ritualistic stuff, which mm-hmm. is used in like ceremonies or legal proceedings. And so once they're aware there's different registers, that provides a greater challenge for how to speak to people in, in different situations using different registers. Yeah, those yeah. subtleties of language are quite interesting for them. It's a bit more of a linguistic approach. Mm. So maybe that would be quite interesting. And maybe that sort of ties into what Niall was saying earlier about just making them rethink something that they've already studied or they've already learned. So it's, it's thinking about, you know, how to functionally get along in this context. Mm-hmm. But now you need to think about the, the right tone of voice or the, the register and the words that you're using. And it's also very often a feature of their L1. You mm-hmm. know, there are very different ways to talk to, you know, uh, whether it's formal or informal and so on too. So it's something they're very interested in, I find. Right. Uh, the next one, third one I looked at, was focusing on vocabulary and not just individual items, but bringing up things like collocations or mm. fixed expressions, but very high-frequency stuff. So coming back to what you said, Nile, about functional language, but making them well aware of mm. these not just individual items, Sam. Yeah, and also, um, I guess, Nile, you've... You've experienced this a fair amount in IELTS is just getting them to be comfortable with word families and building on on different forms of each word and how to use them in different contexts. Yeah, I mean, I even tentatively sometimes uh, talk a, just a little about etymology and mm-hmm. things like uh, all of those academic and formal words like, you know, like school subjects, biology mm. and geography and things like that. When they can see the connections between different words, especially students from Asia, where it's not so obvious to them, it can really help them to grow and develop on on their own too. And that's interesting, actually, because what you're talking about really is uh, cognates, right? So things that are the the same in in sort of Latin-based languages, but usually we use them as a device to teach Spanish students a a sort of quick fix to learning languages. Yeah, they just recognize it. But it's interesting that you could use that actually for for students from Asia and say, actually, you can recognize this too. Um, and I suppose you could use prefixes and suffixes and that kind of thing to, to help mm-hmm. them understand the meaning, mm-hmm. you know, help them to guess from context what word means um, using prefixes and suffixes. Pretty useful. Mm, absolutely. Um, let's move on to my fourth point. Um, I thought about uh, autonomous learning. So mm-hmm. getting students to be more 
aware of how they can help themselves rather than being reliant on what they get in class. Okay, so practically, how do you do that, though? What do you, what do you mean? Do we um, ask them to, you know, about their interests? Is it, yeah, is it about that it kind of thing? Um, ties into that. Yeah, it? it is. But I think uh, practical ways of doing that, so like keeping a journal, uh, a okay. journal of their new language, but also a journal of if there's a common mistake which has been highlighted, so they're aware of that individual error, because obviously there are areas which many students make, but there are some areas which only certain students make. Mm-hmm. So getting them to be aware of what their learning journey is as opposed to the whole class. Right. So really focusing on, on never making that mistake themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So jur- yeah. journals, one way of doing things. Yeah. And things like um, recording yourself or, or perhaps doing a podcast or, you know, making a vlog or I don't know. Again, it yeah. ties in with that, making it enjoyable and perhaps watching yourself as well is quite, um, is quite a good way to focus in on things. Um, yeah, I always uh, recommend graded readers too to uh, okay, well, yeah. to students who like reading. Of course, um, not everyone will go for it, but it's a great way that they can uh, feel autonomous and just go and they find these books themselves and read them themselves, and they can you know they feel independent mm-hmm. and they take it's a good control. sense of achievement as well. And mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, that ties into what we were talking about before for vocabulary. Just that that kind of lots of exposure to language in, mm-hmm. in authentic context. You're mm-hmm. going to see lots and lots of collocations and kind of lots of uh, different forms of the words. It's just a really important thing to do. Well, I mean, we've actually covered both five and six here because my point number five was get students to record themselves. Okay. I mean, as we know here on the podcast, listening to yourself can be quite an uncomfortable experience. Mm-hmm. But if they hear themselves speaking and they, they hear that they're not intelligible to themselves, mm-hmm. then they'll know where they need to improve their pronunciation. Um, and point number six was, yeah, encouraging students to access more native sources so they get more exposure to more frequent common uh, language. Um, right. And, and that's not just about learners, though. We can, of course, bring in authentic content into the classroom. Is that something now that you do at all? Do you bring in newspapers, that kind of thing? or uh, Not so much, to be honest, but uh, I definitely encourage it. And, you know, we, we talk about that from time to time, like I mentioned, graded readers, but also... Things like television and, and movies and that, um, you know, um, having some real experience and exposure to the language, I think, right. is very important. Yeah, and it comes back to what you're saying about students um, learning through things they enjoy. So if it is a podcast or a TV show or a film or a newspaper or something like that, if they're, if they're a really big football fan, then they'll you know mm-hmm. read an article about football or watch a show about football, listen to podcasts about football. So at least they're enjoying it. It doesn't seem like a, a massive drag mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. And it's just becoming part of their life rather than, oh, this is me studying English. Mm-hmm. Right, it's, just, right. it's just part of their course of the day. Not differentiating it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, three more. No, four more, sorry. But number seven is understanding motivation. And this comes back to what Becca said about needs analysis. Um, so, so getting into what the students really want, the reason why they want to learn English and reassessing that and seeing if you can set the new goals, um, maybe academic targets, for example. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously, you know, that analysis, it should be organic. When they started, they obviously had very different needs to, to where they are now. So it's important for them to reflect on that and say, actually, now you've reached this this level. What do you want now? What do you want to achieve mm. now? What are you trying to do with your English? Yeah, mm-hmm. what's the next step? So if you want to kind of, do you want to go to university? Do you want to get a summer job? You know, where you're going to work, isn't it restaurants? So start studying menus, for example. And yeah, the next one, changing habits. Students often form habits, right? Mm-hmm. So they get these kind of learning habits, like relying on a teacher, for example. Um, and that's part of the stagnation. So mm-hmm. this comes back to self-reflection as well. If students analyse their study habits and evaluate what's useful and what might be changed. I was going to say as well that that is something really important for teachers. I don't know if Nile would agree, but I think that teachers can get, I certainly did when I was teaching, just stuck in in, in habits of ways of teaching things or ways of teaching a certain point or, mm. 
you know, you've taught this same page in this course book a million times and you've always done it the same way. I think it really is important to try new things occasionally, you know, and bring things into the classroom because it will inject more enthusiasm for you and it will help language learners. You know? Yeah. And sometimes then it might just click for them. Maybe they've heard it, you know, this way two or three times and it, it doesn't quite make sense or it doesn't hit home. But in it with a slightly different approach, you know, if it's more practical or if it's more visual, um, maybe they'll just suddenly get it and yeah, you yeah. can break that habit. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you get a new start and you get new enthusiasm, hopefully, as well. So that's something teachers should encourage. Um, next one is the penultimate one. Find a high level study buddy. That's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Potentially um, good. Well, studying alone, for most people, I think it, some people love it, but other people it can be quite demotivating, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you feel like you're not making progress. So if you have someone to work opposite who is uh, a slightly higher level than you, you can pick up their good habits and their extra language. That's, That's interesting. So um, how many levels above? I'm just worried about, you know, the higher level student <laughs> being be like, frustrated with it. No, it's like just getting it. things wrong all the time. And, yeah. But I don't know if it's your friend. and. But maybe if you make it part of their their education that's part of their class there's somebody mm -hmm. at a higher level that that's their job now is to sort of act like a teacher and, and help this person to, to someone learn, who's maybe. in the class anyway that's an interesting idea mm -hmm. well another one rather than a study buddy of a higher level you could get someone in another language so if there's if you're say you're not studying in the uk if you're studying in spain but you have an english person living in spain who wants to learn spanish you mm -hmm. find someone of a similar level you do like a language exchange so then you become the teacher for them and they become the teacher for you and then you kind of you're seeing progress in them, it kind of generates a new interest. In so maybe language. ultimately we're talking about just um, practicing with, with other people, new people, changing it up, yeah, talking to new people all yeah. the time. I mean, if there is someone at a higher level, obviously that can be beneficial. But like you say, you've got to be sensitive to if you're frustrating that person at that high level. So, um, Which brings me to the final point, which is just be patient. Mm -hmm. Really, I well, mean, the students should. Really, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So teachers need to be make students aware that this, you know Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, just because you feel that like you've plateaued doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Yeah, I find that sometimes that you know they reach this stage and they uh, they start to ask, "What can I do to? How can I change suddenly?" And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the only answer is really, well, study and practice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, it's not as dramatic a change mm. maybe at pre-intermediate level as it is when they change from no communication to some communication. Mm -hmm. So just keep going. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, the last point is the key point. Learning a language takes both time and commitment. So you have to be prepared to invest both if you're going to break through a language plateau. All right. Thanks, Patrick. OK, Becca, you've got the green light to baseline this next story for us. Woohoo! Okay, everyone, imagine you're in an office and you overhear someone saying this. Please attempt to translate. Okay. The boss said there were too many swim lanes in the deck, so we need to action that solve by close of play, or we might have an ITL situation. Wow, okay. Do you um, one more time? Yeah. Break it down? Yeah. Let's break it down. The boss said there were too many swim lanes in the deck. Okay, I think I know what deck is. Isn't a deck a uh, sort of series of presentation slides? Yeah, like a PowerPoint. Like a PowerPoint uh -huh. presentation. So, so swim lanes. Columns? Yes, correct. Mm. So we need to action that solve by close of play. Action that solve. So, so we need to... Sort of see. enact that solution. Yeah, uh, fix that by the end of yeah. the day. Yeah, fix it by end of the day, yeah. Or we might have an ITL situation. ITL. I'm lost. I don't know. ITL. Oh it's not a good situation. It's got to stand for something, isn't it? 
invited to leave. Invited to leave. So that's when you made redundant. Invited to leave situation. I've invited as well. But you can't refuse that invitation. <laughs> like you get sent a beautiful invitation inviting yeah. you to leave the building with all your possessions. I know. So yes, this is of course office jargon. Love it or hate it. Right. It is here. The question is, is there a place for it in the classroom, specifically in a business English class? So um, have, have you guys taught business English before? Is this something you ever you ever included in your lessons? How about you, Niall? Not so much because I've focused more on academic English and just general spoken English. Mm -hmm. But there could be a case for it if it, at times I think it could just be new language. And, mm -hmm. you know, new language is sometimes quite jarring. We all know words and expressions we didn't enjoy the first time we heard them, but mm -hmm. now we use them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, surely the main point is if, if this is something that they are going to be exposed to in their real lives mm -hmm. everywhere, not just in one specific place, then surely it is something we have to teach them, don't we? How else are they going to communicate if this is the, the kind of language people use? What do you think, Patrick? I don't um, think he's not looking happy over here. No, I mean, I, I did used to teach business English mm -hmm. um, some of the time. And <clears throat> I tended to teach, um, I guess, more kind of practical things like uh, sequencing presentations and things. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, the thing here would be you'd have to be absolutely sure that it's a word that's going to stick around and be practically useful for businessmen in their in their interactions with, you know, internationally. Mm. Yeah, I That's think, you know, find out what your students do. Do, do their, co do, maybe they work with colleagues in different countries or people, you know, they have to use English. So are people using these terms? And, and if they are, then yeah, you need to let them know what they are. And that actually makes me think of something else that um, really we're just sort of lumping in everything together as business language. But there, there are lots of different sort of fields, aren't there? And there lots of different yeah. things. So, you know, people that work in design would use very, very different language, I guess, to or jargon to, yeah, to somebody in absolutely. accounts. I think some feels it's essential. Yeah, I think there's there's two things, aren't there? There's the jargon and there's the industry-specific terminology. And, and I was looking at a few um, ESP books and, I mean, there's loads of it. There's a logistics book and it's just full of acronyms that you really need to know, like HGV, which I guess we know. and But there's like... FIFO and LIFO, so first in and first out, last in and first out. There's these things that you need to know and, and it's essential and it's um, important to know. Yeah, I suppose a lot of it would be knowing it <clears throat> receptively if you're going to come across it in a document rather than mm. kind of FIFO and LIFO. I've never heard them before in my life. I mean, I, I know obviously when you say them fully, everyone's heard them. But yeah, in logistics, presumably you, you might need to know that. Yeah, and, and actually some of the, the things in the intro uh, sentence, you know, you will have to need use them. If somebody says to you, you know, that there are too many swim lanes in your deck, <laughs> you need to know what that means. Otherwise, <laughs> but then there is an argument with just saying, you know, because you can say a lot of these things. We have words that, that already communicate what these things are. We don't need mm. to action something, just do something. But, um, but it does, I mean, right. it's quite a fun thing, isn't it, anyway? And I think teaching them Teaching these terms can be kind of a simple and fun thing for a teacher to do. You know, there's there's always simple synonyms for things. And often it's, you know, sports metaphors like close of play and that kind of thing. So easy to understand. And they, they will come across it, too. Mm -hmm. uh, when they're working, these phrases will come up, um, particularly the ones which stay around. But mm -hmm. um, they, they will come across some things and some jargon that is not in the most uh, uh, mainstream or centered kind of course book. A bit niche. 
Yeah. But it's important to know it, even if they're not necessarily going to use it, Yeah. if they're going to come across it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so maybe then it's about them, uh, you know, bringing language to the class. You know, if they are working um, and using English every day and coming to your class, you know, uh, as well, then perhaps they can bring in anything that they didn't understand. Hey, this guy used this word baseline. And I have mm-hmm. no idea what it means. And you can talk about it as a class. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about being autonomous and getting your students to bring it into class. And you can incorporate it into the work you do, whether that's making presentations or or negotiating or whatever the, the situations they need that language for, then you can tailor the lesson. But yeah, you know, it does come in and out of fashion. And as long as they know that, I think that's absolutely fine. But I think you have to be careful not to get it wrong. And I think they need to know that, that, that it's transitory, that it's a bit divisive. You know, some people can't stand it. So you kind of have to suss it out a little bit and see what your colleagues are doing. Yeah, and that's a fair point because if you're sort of teaching them to use this language, mm. you're sort of implying that everybody uses it um, and that everyone's comfortable with it. But actually, you might just make people angry. Yeah. Make, if you used it with Patrick, he'd just get upset. Yeah. You know? But again, that's an important distinction to make. It's it might be important to understand all of this jargon, but that doesn't mean that you always need to to use it yourself. Right. right. I mean, I can give you a kind of more uh, general example, which is I had some students uh, a while ago who were, who were doing IELTS, and they they did a lot of the kind of um, sequencing words for for writing uh, an essay, and they'd often use moreover, furthermore. But then they started using in kind of conversations. They introduced mm, themselves and say, you know, my, my name is so-and-so and moreover, yeah. I have two brothers. Right, right. And, you know, obviously you need to let them know when it's right to use it and when it's not right to use it. Yeah, true. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah, I think we'd, we'd agree there could be a place for jargon in the classroom, um, especially if we're talking about industry-specific terms where it's essential. Yeah, I think language is changing all the time. We know that. So you've got to go with it and let your students make up their own mind about using it um, or not. All right. Thanks very much. So, listeners, over to you. How do you tackle language plateaus? Do you teach office jargon in your business classes? Email your comments to onestoppodcast at springernature.com. Okay, next up, it's warmer of the month. Each month, we challenge our guest teacher to explain a fun, communicative activity in no more than five steps. So, Niall, you're up. Okay, so this is an activity you could call experts. So basically, you can work it various different ways, but basically you have a topic and uh, one student is an expert on this topic, whether Mm -hmm. they like it or not. And it's particularly good if they, you know, sometimes they may feel under pressure to have an opinion or to know something about a topic. But in this case, you don't need to know anything. It's even more fun if you don't know anything Mm -hmm. about the topic. Okay. So... One student is designated the expert and the other students ask questions about that. And they need to answer as convincingly as possible or if it's silly or crazy, well, why not as long mm-hmm. as the language is good? Okay. And of course, you can cycle that and uh, repeat. So maybe, Sam, you could be the expert. Well, OK, I was actually going to nominate Patrick because he's a bit of a night all. So I think he should be the, the expert. I'd love to grill him. Go on. I'm happy to do I that. Feel about that. <laughs> okay. And can we give us something really challenging that he knows nothing about? Um, or something really silly. Yeah, what about Antarctica? Ooh. I'm uh, an expert on Antarctica. Antarctica, sure. okay. So, um, uh, Becca and Sam, you just need to prepare some questions and the students okay. can take some time to do that and uh-huh. check the questions and so on. And we can adjust it for level and so on. Um, but basically, you just need to now ask Patrick some questions on Antarctica, and he will answer with uh, 
folk expertise. Excellent. Okay. You got right. one? Uh, you go first. Okay. Um, what's the average temperature in Antarctica? Uh, summer or winter? Uh, <laughs> uh, summer, please. Summer, uh, it's 25 degrees uh, centigrade, not, not Fahrenheit. Um, that was very expertise. Wasn't it? <laughs> We're convinced. Winter, uh, minus 69. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, can you eat the snow in Antarctica and survive for up to eight days? Yes. <laughs> and you can encourage him to elaborate. It shouldn't be a yes yeah, or no you, question. Yeah, yeah. Could, you, um, could you give me a bit more information? Is, have you got any sort of recipes or...? Uh, no recipes as such. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, y- yes, you can, but it's not advised. If you can get some your hands on some whale blubber, mm. um, ah, okay. that's obviously, you know, to maybe better. flavor the water a little bit. I yeah. was going to ask about the flora and fauna. So, um, yeah, how many types of animal can you find in Antarctica? 2,036. Wow. Mm. Excellent. Um, and that, that is very precise. Mm. Yeah, what percentage of those are feline? Feline, uh, I think between 10 and 12%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew that I was such a font of knowledge about Antarctica? Yeah. Who knew that you knew so many numbers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit numbery, isn't well, it? These questions are numerical, though. Yeah, that's our yeah. fault. So, of course, you can you know, take a little more time to prepare questions mm. for, the, for, the, for the class that you have and, and the level and mm. you know, you know, maybe to approach the target language that you're practicing. Mm, it's really nice. I like the no pressure thing. Because as soon as you said expert, I started thinking, oh, God, what am I an expert in? What can mm. I talk about? Uh, and you suddenly get a bit flustered. But yeah, this just so, cancels all that out. So they can just lie or make it up. Yeah. And they don't have to worry about how much they know in real life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every single one of those stats was, in fact, a lie. Goodness me. Well, listeners can look them up at home. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks very much. Let's move on. Now it's time for Word of the Month. Each month we discuss a piece of ELT jargon and how it affects teachers. So, Patrick, what can you tell us about reflective teaching? Okay, well, reflective teaching is, is not literally teaching in front of a mirror because, I mean, that, I mean, it could be either hideous or, or quite good fun depending on your disposition. Now, reflective teaching is taking the time after class to step back and think about how your lesson went and what you could do to improve it. So Scott Thornbury, who we all remember from previous podcasts, describes reflective teaching as a key stage in an experiential learning cycle that also includes planning, action and learning. So to be reflective practitioners, teachers should be willing to think critically about their teaching both inside and outside the classroom and be willing to identify various problems, look at solutions and implement these solutions as plans of action. Okay, so how... How would you do this? What are some ways to do this other than just thinking about it? Well, it's like we said before, we were talking about students, about keeping a journal, possibly about peer observations. So that would be uh, not self-reflection, but you could get some reflections from your colleagues. Mm. Um, Niall, do you you reflect on your teaching practice and do you have any tips? Um, Yeah, sure. I can't always uh, have the liberty to do it in a formalised way, but always uh, think about what went wrong and what could have been better. And uh, personally, I'm a big fan of peer observation when it's possible. Mm. Um, you know, both when you're watching one of your colleagues teach and you, you, you can clearly see what's happening and uh, 
uh, when you're in the moment yourself, you don't have that time mm. to reflect, but uh, that can help you. And also when people observe your lesson and give you feedback, that's yeah. always very useful. It's a good thing to do with kind of staging and timings of stages as well, because obviously when you're new to teaching, you often don't realize quite how long a particular activity will take to set up. And then, you know, error correction, for example, as well. So. It's really important. I think, yeah, self-reflection is really a key component of kind of improving your professional expertise. And as we said, like a, a blog or a journal are good ways of, of getting, getting that started. Um, I mean, there's other things you can compare reflective teaching with, such as when trainee teachers learn, just they learn a bit of theory and then they put that into practice and they're judged by their, by their trainers. Or you might have an apprenticeship where a novice teacher watches a more experienced teacher and then bases their practice on their mentor. But I think when you get to, like we talked about students at an intermediate plateau, when teachers mm. have been teaching for a, a number of years and maybe in a number of different contexts, for them it's important to start reflecting on their teaching so they know how they can improve and uh, adapt what went well. All right, thanks very much. Okay, let's move on to this month's interview. This month, Patrick is talking to David Crystal about language variations, the importance of Shakespeare, and how we should all think about grammar. Okay, hi David. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks very much. Thanks for the call. Excellent. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Brilliant. Okay, so I want to uh, start by going back to uh, when you were at university, and I understand you studied at UCL in London and specialised in English language studies, so I wondered what attracted you to that particular discipline at that time. Well, it was all part of a, a, a more general interest in language and languages, which goes right back to the beginning, really, when I was a little lad growing up here in Wales, uh, in, a, in a bilingual area. Uh, but in a home that was monolingual. But right mm. on the street, of course, there's another language. And so I was curious, and I remember asking my mum about why I could understand one person and not understand another person. And then, of course, as I grew up, uh, you, I learned Welsh in on the streets and in school, um, and then learned other languages and realised that language was one of the most fascinating topics of all. So when I went to university, I wanted to find a course that would give me... Uh, a focus on the language I knew best, which was my mother tongue, English, which at the same time would cover both language and literature, which for me are two sides of a single coin, and yet would give me a broader language perspective, which is what that university college course did, because you learned there not just English, but you learned about phonetics, you learned about uh, the history of language, other languages related to English, like Gothic and, and uh, you know, Frisian and all these old languages. It was just the most fascinating experience, and that's how it all started. Oh, brilliant. Okay. And then following university, you moved on to become a lecturer first at, at Bangor University and then Reading. And in 1964, you published your first book. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, the, uh, having learned English... Um, and then having had this linguistic context in the course, when a job came up teaching linguistics, this was at the very beginning of linguistics, of course. There were hardly any courses teaching linguistics in those days, back in the 60s, and the Bangor course was one of the first. And so, uh, yes, I was lucky enough to get a, a junior job in that new linguistics department and learnt the subject of linguistics, as it were, almost by having to teach it week <laughs> by week by week. And then the research side of things was developing at the same time. My course at London, I was very fortunate again to have as a, uh, a lecturer, a professor there, Randolph Quirk. 
And uh, he was starting the survey of English usage, which was my very first job as a research assistant on that survey. And one of the things Quirk was very good at was collaborating with his young students. And my very first book was a collaboration with him. Mm. So I learned the trade of writing academically, as it were, by having uh, this amazing collaborator to work with. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and so since 1964, since that first book, you've actually published around 100 books or so. Um, and what, what have you learned about the writing process uh, as you've become more experienced? Well, the subject of language is what drives the number of books. People often say, you know, how on earth can you write 100 books on a subject? Well, the thing is that language is that sort of subject. Language is always changing. Language is always varied. Whatever English was like yesterday, it's different today. It'll be different tomorrow. So if I write a book about the English language last year, well, it's already out of date in a sense, Mm. uh, in, in that so much has happened, so many new things are going on. And so there is always this drive to keep up to date with language. Now, not just because the language is changing in its own right, it's changing because of the circumstances in which it finds itself. I mean, take the Internet, for instance. You know, as soon as the Internet came along, everything that we knew about language and languages changes, in a sense, because the way English and other languages are used on the Internet is different from the way in which it's used in face-to-face conversation and in traditional written forms. So that's one dimension that forces you to keep writing and keep writing and Mm -hmm. keep studying. And the other, of course, is the fact that English has become a global language. Well, now that's a thing, because now suddenly, instead of it just being old British English and American English, where we knew where we were, and all teachers knew where they were as well, it was a nice straightforward English language teaching situation with just these two main varieties to deal with. Now we've got Australian English and Indian English and South African English and 50 or 60 other kinds of English developing all over the English-speaking world. So that's another amazing area to explore, to study, and to write books about. And so these two thrusts of language variation and language change motivate the continuing writing of articles and books and things, and not just me, of course, but a huge industry around the English-speaking world. Mm. So, yeah, constant change is, is the driver behind that. But, of course, one thing which is, has not changed is the popularity of Shakespeare in English. And um, you've written some books about Shakespeare. So I wonder what, what attracts you to his work and how do you think, um, sorry, how do you think uh, drama can help students learn English? Well, drama is conversation, essentially, isn't it? Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a dramatic situation in which conversation is being used for whatever dramatic purpose the author has in mind. And what is the main driving force behind English language teaching? To be good at conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is an in, in intimate connection between the language of drama and the language of everyday conversation. All the things that uh, students and teachers want to uh, acquire in the everyday field, they will find written large, as it were, in the field of drama. Now, historically, of course, there are differences, but not that many differences. Shakespearean language is different from modern English, but only to a minor extent. Something like uh, 90 or 95 percent of the words that Shakespeare uses are also used in modern English. You know, there's only 5 or 10 percent change in the vocabulary and even less change in the grammar. Mm. And so um, one of the reasons for studying Shakespeare is not just because he's wonderful (laughs) in, in a literary and dramatic sense, but because he is fascinating linguistically, not just because of the differences, which, as I say, are relatively few, but because of the way in which here is the English language being used 
in the most amazing way that anybody has ever used the English language. So if you're studying English, you want to study not just the routine, everyday matters, you want to study the potential of the language to express the inexpressible, almost. And Shakespeare is the best example for doing that. So I was always attracted to it, right from the very beginning. As I said, when I was at University College, there was Lang and Lit, Mm. and a lot of the Lit was Shakespeare. And then in recent times, there has been this uh, new movement to... Uh, produce the plays, present the plays in the uh, pronunciation of the time, Mm. uh, going back to early modern English pronunciation. How did Shakespeare sound in 1600? And this is the area that I've specialized in over the last 10 years or so, because theater companies all over the world now are wanting to hear the plays in the way that they would have sounded. And there are so many... um, points of difference here. I mean, for example, rhymes that don't work in modern English work in the pronunciation of Shakespeare. In the sonnets, for instance, the word love rhymes with the word prove. Mm. Well, it doesn't rhyme in modern English. Well, what's going on? Uh, well, in early modern English, love and it would have been prov. There would have mm. been a perfect rhyme there. And so when you study this kind of thing, you realize there's a freshness that can come from reconstructing the earlier pronunciation and presenting the plays and poems in that way. So that's the uh, context for my recent interest in Shakespeare. Yeah, it's very interesting indeed. Um, And you mentioned the grammar in Shakespeare, not changing that much. Now, grammar is something that a lot of novice teachers struggle with, but fortunately for them, you've got a new book, uh, Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar. And this explains the secrets and subtleties of uh, the grammar of English. So when you were researching and writing this, was there anything that particularly surprised or amused you? Well, the, the surprise comes when you, you realize that an awful lot of people think of grammar in the wrong way. They think that grammar is a matter of, um, of nouns and verbs and subjects and objects and actives and passives. And the, the aim of grammar is to learn the mechanics of the language. And they spend all their time worrying about that. Well, that's a bit like saying to somebody who's learning to drive a car. uh, Now, all you need to know about driving a car is to name all the parts of the car. (laughs) That is a wheel. That is a brake. That is an accelerator. And so long as you can analyze all the parts of the car, then you're you're going to be a good driver. And clearly, there's a lot more to driving a car than that. And similarly, there's a lot more to driving the language, driving the grammar of the language than that. When you're studying grammar, you have to know not just the naming of the parts, the bits and the pieces of the sentence. You've got to know why the grammar is there, what its function is, what you're going to use it for. The communicative approach in English language teaching was very important in focusing on that side of things. And when you ask me, what is the basis of grammar? My answer is, grammar exists to make sense of words. Mm. Words by themselves do not make sense. Grammar is a matter of making sense. And so you can't really study grammar, in my view, without studying the meaning of the sentences and the paragraphs and the discourses and everything, and also the purpose of those sentences. Why are they being used? The pragmatics, in other words. And so my book really concentrates on explaining how semantics is an important dimension for the study of grammar, the study of meaning, and pragmatics is an important dimension for the study of grammar, the study of use. And that was the the big surprise, really, to to realize that most people 
out there who are studying and grammar every day and learning the grammar of English to the best of their ability are doing so with a focus on grammar alone and not spending enough attention on paying enough attention to the semantics and the pragmatics of things. Brilliant. That's absolutely fascinating. It sounds incredibly useful. And um, so uh, last question for today, but what, what's next for you? What, uh, what, what have you got coming up? Well, what I've got coming up at the uh, at the moment, you mean uh, books are already in print or books I'm working on? Or, cu- or a current project, sure. Yeah. Well, the current project is um, one that will interest an awful lot of your listeners, I suspect, because one of the books, well, probably my best-selling book, is the Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language, which came out in a first edition um, in the 1990s and was soon out of date because, of course, uh, the Internet comes along in the (laughs) 1990s and there's no mention of the Internet in the first edition of the book. Mm. So the second edition of the book comes out 10 years later, well, 2003, um, and that had a big section on English on the Internet and all sorts of other updating that was going on. Mm. But that's 2003. We're 15 years on. And so the current project is the third edition of the English Language Encyclopedia. And I'm working on that right now. As soon as I put the phone down, um, that's what I'll be doing. Uh, And the amazing thing there is, of course, the extraordinary development of the English language over the past 10 or 15 years, Um, not just in the terms of the Internet and the like, but, you know, we're talking post-Brexit now. We're talking mm. post-Trump now. And all of these things have got to be part of a, of a new uh, statement about how the English language is in the 2010s and looking forward to the 2020s. Uh, and the mere fact that the global statistics have grown so enormously. I mean, here's, a, here's an anticipation for you, Patrick. Um, in the second edition, uh, as everybody says, something like 1.5 billion, maybe approaching 2 billion people speak English around the world. Well, I've just finished recalculating the statistics just the other day, and the figure now is definitely at least 2.3 billion, wow. which is a significant increase over the figures that people are talk- were talking about just recently, you know, 1.5 billion. Well, no, it's almost another billion on top of that. So that's the reason why we need a new edition. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And it sounds like it's going to be fascinating, incredibly useful for, for a lot of our listeners and, and other people as, as well. Well, well I um, hope so. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time again. Well, it's been a r- real pleasure and all power to you for the show and the, and the way it's developing. Thanks very much. And best of luck with the third edition. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> Cheers. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, next up is Teacher Tips. Each month we probe our guest teacher for professional advice. So, Niall, over to you. Yeah, well, the first tip I want to have um, is quite general, and that's just basically to be a language learner yourself. You never understand uh, the student's point of view until you are a language learner yourself, and you go through that and have the same difficulties and you recognize the same pitfalls and just sometimes how, how different different languages can be. So it's a very a totally invaluable experience for your empathy for your students and um, to help them with that. Are you, are you studying a language currently? I'm studying Korean at the moment. Wow. How's that going? Yeah, not too bad. But I, I, have, I feel exactly the same thing that my students feel sometimes mm. where they, they recognize words, they know language, but just getting it out of your mouth sometimes mm. is quite a challenge. It's very tough, especially Korean. I, I mean, I learned Korean when I was working in Korea and it's, yeah. 
There's, there's no, no similarities to drawn at all. Yeah, and part of it is just, uh, you know, giving having some mouth practice too. I didn't realize that before I came back to studying a language again, that uh, maybe when we think too much about remembering and understanding, but sometimes it's just muscle memory in your mouth and lips and speaking and, you know, God knows I rarely think when I'm speaking English. So <laughs> Yeah, so I'm making it a habit. Mouth, really. yeah. yeah, good tip, okay. And the other one is a little more specific because um, I've been teaching IELTS for a long time in my school. So it's about IELTS or really any exam class. And it's basically know your exam inside out, you know, do it with your students. Don't just think you can, you know, sail up at the end and you've got all of the answers correct, uh, particularly in IELTS or Cambridge Advanced. You might be surprised mm. there. And, um, you know, again, get to know all of the the little tricks and the, the difficult parts um, and as they relate to your students' needs and desires and and so on. Yeah, I think that's a great tip, um, especially for things like IELTS and, as you say, yeah. advanced. It's like learning the language, isn't learning a language. Just do it yourself and that will create a lot of empathy and mm-hmm. I think those students will be quite chuffed to know that you did it as well. And, and that you also got one wrong. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. 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 You know. exactly. Great. All right, thanks very much. And finally, it's Q&A time on the One Stop Podcast, the part of the show in which we try to answer your questions. So, is everyone ready? Yay! Yes. First question this month is, how should I plan for a multi-level class? Niall. I mean, well, I think one way is uh, if you have students of different levels, and I think we alluded to it earlier today, is one way is pair work. Mm. So you have a higher level student with the lower level student, as well as you can manage that. And... If they're working together on a project like uh, writing a dialogue or role play, then um, it's good practice for both the higher level student and it also brings on the lower level. Yeah, you need to ensure that higher level student still getting the challenge and not feeling a bit shortchanged. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's something I I banged on about in previous podcasts, uh, authentic materials. If you bring in a newspaper and then you say the students who are maybe a slightly lower level, they might focus on a slightly easier part of it, like the headline oh, okay. or, um, or perhaps like just the, the introduction to the story. And then higher level students could look into the story itself. Mm. And even the highest level students could take some of the vocabulary and write their own story. Or you could have a whole class discussion once that's over. So that authentic materials have, have uh, more possibility than kind of like course books where you've got pre-intermediate or different levels well actually I was going to say not even just um, uh, authentic materials actually content in general you know you just exploit it in different ways you just have different tricks up your sleeve or have questions or, or ways to expand on what is already there so if they all do a reading text together and some of them finish quickly then maybe you've got something up your sleeve for the people that are finding it really easy and I think for uh, listening activities um, it could be a case of simply giving the recording script to lower level students and and making the higher level students work harder. Okay. Next question. Is getting a job the best way to learn English? Or I guess uh, any language for Mm. that matter. It's it's helpful. It will help. It sort of depends on your job, doesn't it? Because often when you go to work, you you say the same things every day. So you're just kind of practicing the same thing again and again. Unless you do kind of engineer situations where you're using other types of English. But I think that's a good point. So it depends where you work. You know, if you work in a mm. sort of uh, family cafe, for example, you might have more opportunity to talk to the customers than you would say in a sort of big coffee chain. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, I think ultimately your language is going to end up being very specific and functional yeah. to that, that position, isn't it? 
Well, one thing I have found is that uh, it can be quite good for helping people tell the time in English. We have this uh, quite quite tricky system of 20 past three and 20 to four. And uh, usually if people have a job, they, they master that pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, they have to, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> okay, and finally, what's your favorite word to teach and why? Niall. Uh, okay, I I don't usually go out of my way to teach this word, but sometimes it comes up organically, and that is uh, fast. I don't mean the adjective, I mean the, the noun or verb fast, to not eat. Okay. Ah, okay. And, um, you know, we don't use it all the time, but sometimes it comes up, particularly if you have uh, Muslim students during Ramadan, or maybe some other reasons. In It could be IELTS again, academic English. But um, the reason I like it is that, you know, of course, they recognize the word and they think it's related to speed or tempo and uh, they learn the new meaning. And then you can say, well, do you eat when you're sleeping? And they say no, and they don't know where you're going. So what do you do when you wake up? You break fast. Mm -hmm. And it's always a lovely moment. They always it's like a little light bulb goes off and they they realize that break fast. Well, it probably was break fast at one time yeah. before it became breakfast. So There's that lovely little nice. moment of, ah. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Becca, yeah. what about you? Um, example? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I used <clears> to quite <throat> like teaching those kind of onomatopoeic words just because it just, mm. you know, because they just sound great anyway. And if everyone's saying it at the same time, like ooze or something, ooze. 20 people saying okay. ooze, it's just, it's just <laughs> lovely or squish or squash. And, and it's all very yeah, different yeah. from language from, to language. But yeah, I quite like those, those moments. Okay, Patrick? Um, my favourite word to teach was probably one of my favourite words anyway. Um, <laughs> and I sort of taught it because it's my favourite word. But then there became reason to teach it, and that is uh, shenanigans. Mm. Right. I quite like teaching that because obviously you've got a difficult pronunciation with a sh at the start. Certain nationalities have trouble with that, and then you've got a mm. little cluster of nina in the middle. And then you've got difficult a difficult word to teach as well, you know, giving examples for a, of a shenanigan. Yeah, I just, I just like the word as well. It's a difficult word to elicit. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I, ne I, I never actually tried to elicit it, but also it's got four <laughs> syllables as well. I like to imagine you prancing around at the front of the class. <laughs> that, that, that never happened. But uh, Sam, what about you? Um, I used to love the word clumsy because it's very easy to demonstrate as you're walking into the class with coffee and books and things. So it's always oh, quite good fun. That's good. Yeah. It's quite onomatopoeic as well, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right, brilliant. Well, that's it for this month and this series. If you have any questions, suggestions or feedback, please email us at onestoppodcast at springernature.com or leave a comment on the One Stop page. Thank you to our in-house panellists, Patrick and Becca, for all your hard work. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks, Sam. Thanks to our guest teacher, Niall Ishiel. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. And until next time, this is the One Stop English podcast.